0: We spent the last two weeks talking about the Beatitudes and how, in a big way, they describe and should define the attitudes, the character, the behavior of the citizens of Christ's kingdom, which every real Christian is. They were, the Beatitudes, were and are so counter cultural, so upside down, that at first glance, it might be easy to come away thinking that to really have and maintain those character traits, a Christian just needs to completely disengage and isolate from the world, that that's the only way possible to keep those kinds of character traits. That's how counterintuitive they are. But to think that, would be to completely miss the point of what Jesus said. And it would be to completely miss the purpose of why he said it. And we see that by looking at the next part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five, thirteen through sixteen. I'd like for you to join me there, look at your copy of God's Word, Matthew five, thirteen through sixteen. And this section, this next section in the Sermon on the Mount, is the application of the introduction. It's the application of what Jesus was talking about in the Beatitudes and giving those lists. The Beatitudes focused on how to be. The next section deals with how being that way should make a difference in the upside down world around you. So Matthew 5.13, I'm reading from the CSB, God's Word. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. There's a lot of good uses for salts, a lot of popular common uses, but the main purpose that we have for it is to enhance or bring out the flavor of our food. Maybe like me, many of you are saltaholics. You put salt on everything. That's me. It's a problem. I admit it. I acknowledge it. I don't even usually stop to taste something to see if it needs salt. I'm going to just assume it does, and I'll start salting it, and my wife usually has to say did you try it first? And I say, no, why would I try it first? I know it's going to need salt. My grandmother was worse than I am, though. She would actually salt pizza. That's just really bad. That's just wrong. She would do that. Not the crust. I mean, the actual sauce and the cheese and everything. It was really bad. But, you know, we we do that. We we like salt. Most of us, some of you maybe don't, but that's okay. Uh, We know that salt, it brings out the flavor or it adds flavor to food. And there were a lot of uses for salt in biblical times as well. It was used as disinfectant, you know, to sterilize things. It was used in temple sacrifices. The Old Testament is full of instructions about salt offerings and the tabernacles and the temples. And it was even used by Rome to pay their soldiers. The phrase, he's worth His salt, or they're worth their salt, that's where it came from. Rome actually would pay their soldiers salt. That was the currency that they often would pay their soldiers with because it was that precious of a commodity. And though not nearly as much as we use it today, it was used also to a lesser degree to enhance the food's flavor even then. But in a world without fridges and freezers... Salt's primary purpose was preservation, to preserve food. Those first disciples, hearing the Sermon on the Mount and hearing that that we just read, would have been very familiar with the the main purpose of salt, the preservation purpose behind salt. Especially the two sets of brothers Peter and Andrew, James and John, the fishermen, they would have absolutely understood the preservation role of salt. Because without refrigeration, the fish that they caught that was their livelihood would quickly, quickly spoil and rot. I mean, it is the Middle East after all. And if they didn't package what they caught and preserve it and rub it in salt and process it in salt, I mean, it would have been ruined and that would have yielded no income for them. Where Jesus was giving the Sermon on the Mount, there was a nearby town called Magdala. And it was known for their salted fish. That was the primary uh, industry, if you will, of this town of Magdala. There would be the fish that were caught in the Sea of Galilee, it was brought up to this town, and they would process it and package it with salt, and they got really, really good at it. And so they became known for this, and they exported it, their salted fish, all over the region. And it was so popular, and they did it so well, that the Romans actually renamed the town Tarikiae, which meant the town of the salted fish. Nice and original. That's what they became known for. This town was also known later for something else. This is where Mary Magdala, Mary Magdalene, yes, that's where she was from. And uh, we meet her later in the Gospels. But this is the scene that was around Jesus. This was the environment he was in. This town was probably just two or three miles away, so no doubt people from this town came up to where he was giving the Sermon on the Mount. And so there would have been this immediate, immediate connection with what Jesus just said about salt, knowing what it was used for, knowing specifically how it was used in in that nearby town. And what Jesus was doing by saying this, he was calling his disciples, the citizens of his kingdom, which includes us today, he was calling them to be instruments of, of spiritual preservation. Instruments of spiritual preservation in the spiritually decaying world around them. And certainly we know that was not just true of the first century. The world is constantly in a state of spiritual decay, probably now more than ever. And so the call to the citizens of his kingdom, the original call to be the salt of the earth, that preserving agent spiritually speaking it's never been more applicable never more relevant and never more needed than today we need to hear this church we need to hear this we need to apply this this is what needs to be true of us it's about being an obvious contrast to the obvious corruption in the culture and that's a high honor isn't it it's a high honor and privilege to be called of Jesus, to be the preserving agent he uses in the decaying, corrupt world around us. That he would use us and call us to that work, to be that preserving instrument. But as much of a high honor and a privilege as that is, we cannot ignore the rest of the verse and the serious warning contained in it. The first part, he said, you're the salt of the earth. Then there's the warning. If the salt, which we are supposed to be, should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Where salt losing its taste is mentioned in several translations, the one I'm reading from, the CSB, and many of yours as well, that's really better translated and reads more literally, should be defiled. So if the salt should be defiled, that's really what is being conveyed here. That's the idea, and that's the literal meaning and and better translation. And though salt will always remain salt, it's never going to not be salt, it can and does become contaminated. Salt is made up of the chemical compound sodium chloride. And sodium chloride must, must, must remain pure to be of any value or to have any use, to have any effectiveness. And when impurities or contaminants get mixed in, sodium chloride becomes weak and it breaks down, and it becomes then the salt that becomes tasteless, becomes non preserving. And even potentially poisonous, can actually become toxic. And this was especially common, as you would imagine, in the culture of Christ's day. It happened all the time. And when that happened, the only thing left to do was indeed what Jesus talks about in the second part of this verse. Now, here's what we need to understand application wise Jesus is not saying it's possible for true Christians to lose their salvation. Don't equate salvation with the saltiness here. He is saying, though, that it's possible for them, for us, to become ineffective in the world by not being intentionally guarded against contamination from the world. That's what he's talking about. That's the point he's trying to drive home here. And we understand this intellectually. We, we get this. This isn't hard for us to wrap our minds around. Compromise, we know this, compromise quickly leads to complete corruption. Compromise quickly leads to complete corruption. We've read story after story of this, unfortunately. We've seen this in, in our families. We've seen this in our communities. We've seen it in our churches where a little compromise here on this issue and a little compromise over here on that issue a little compromise doctrinally a little compromise theologically even a little compromise philosophically is a very slippery slope that just about inevitably just about every time leads to complete corruption That's what Jesus is talking about here. And the the principle that we need to make sure we understand, that we believe, that we remember, that we recall, that we apply is this. We can't be like salt for the world by being like the world. Do you agree with that? I hope you do because this is so, so important to make sure that we actually believe and then live out We're called to be salt, right? We're called today, just like the original disciples were called at this point, called to be the preserving instrument and agent that our Lord Jesus, our Savior, wants to use as the preserving agent in a decaying world. But we can't be like that salt that he intends us to be by being like the world that we're supposed to be preserving. And so often, unfortunately, it's tragic, there's been this growing, this pervasive philosophy that is totally backwards. There's this growing mindset within Christendom that the way to reach the world is to be like the world. And that's not the way to reach the world. Not really. It might look like that, for a little bit, it may feel like that. Hey, it certainly will be more comfortable as you're trying to minister to and preserve the world. It'll certainly be comfortable, certainly go easier. But the truth of the matter is there really won't be any preserving going on. There really won't be any eternal impact being made because it's just not possible. What happens to salt when contaminants are introduced to it? It breaks down and it corrupts it and it's no longer good. The same thing happens to the body of Christ when we are not distinct from the world. That's the same thing that's going to happen. I'm not talking about not being loving to the world. I'm not talking about not being compassionate to the world. I'm not talking about not... Um, showing grace and mercy to the world. That's not what I'm saying when I'm I'm talking about not compromising. I'm talking about breaking down the the stand that we are to have on the timeless, universal truth and principles of God's Word. That's what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm talking about being holy, being set apart. See, the holiness and the purity of the church is what the world needs to be preserved. So we're not going to do any good for the world that needs us to be that good preserving agent if we aren't separate from them and they're decaying. If we're not separate from their pollution, how are we going to preserve or purify their pollution? You see, see what, I'm, what I'm saying here? And that's what Jesus is saying. That's the point of this. Well, the question then is, how do we avoid it? I think we can pretty easily get on the same page about the fact that we can't be like the salt for the world that we're supposed to be if we're like the world. We can't be preserving them if we're polluted by them. So we get that. But then the question then is, all right, well, how do I keep from that happening? How do I keep myself from being contaminated by the culture I'm supposed to be reaching and changing? Thankfully, God's word gives us the answer. Aren't you glad God does that? He doesn't just say, here's a concept, here's a principle, here's a standard, here's a truth. Good luck figuring it out how to do that. That's not what he does. He's so good. He gives us the answer to what we need or the answer to the question we have of how to do what he's calling us to do. He gives it to us in his word. Here's an example of that. Here's our answer to how we avoid it. And here's the remedy for us when we find ourselves being corrupted by culture. It happens. It's easy. We can easily be contaminated, easily be corrupted before we know it. And if that happens, all is not lost. There's a remedy for that. Both the way of avoiding that corruption and the remedy for if we are being corrupted, it's found in this passage, 2 Peter 1, 3-4. 2 Peter 1, 3-4. This is from the ESV, 2 Peter 1, through 3-4, God's Word. His, speaking of God, His divine power, not our power, not our ability or effort, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through The knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. His divine power, God's power, has granted to us all things, everything we need that pertain to life and godliness. That's everything. Through the knowledge of him, of Jesus. That's how the divine power of God is granted to us. The power we need for life and godliness, it comes through the knowledge of Jesus who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which, there's an arrow that points back to the glory and the excellence. If you mark in your Bibles, I would encourage you to do that. Draw a little arrow where it says, by which, point an arrow back to glory and excellence. Because it's his own glory and excellence, Jesus' own glory and excellence that he called us to. That's how the next part happens. By which he has granted to us, His precious and very great promises. So, He's called us to His own glory and excellence by which He's granted to us His precious and very great promises. So that through them, through what? Through His precious and very great promises that He's given us, you may become, and don't miss this part. This is just, this is the icing on the cake you may become partakers or participants of the divine nature. Wow. That's it. There it is, right there. God, in all of His divine power, and all of His glory, He has granted us everything we need as we go through life, as we strive to be godly. He's given us everything we need And it came to us through the knowledge of Jesus who called us to his own glory. And then through that glory that he's called us to, he's given us all, all of his precious and great promises that are cover to cover in his word. That's where we find his precious and great promises. That's where we know about him. And through those, through those great promises, precious promises, through those, as we read those and know those and apply those to our lives, we become partakers of the divine nature that God in his grace amazingly has given us the ability to participate in. And then here's what we do with that, with that participation in the divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption, or in other words, to escape to escape from the corruption. We may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That church, that's how we avoid the corruption of the world. That's how we find the remedy for when we start to maybe become corrupted by it. That's it. It's right here. It's his divine power giving us everything we need for life and godliness, setting everything we need to be set apart from the world we're supposed to be reaching. Through the knowledge of Jesus, that he called us to his own glory, then he made all of his precious promises available to us, That through them and nothing else, we may actually step into and participate in the divine nature of God. Not that we become God, but that His power is something we can absolutely have and apply and escape the corruption of the world around us. Who is like our God? Tell me that. Who is like our God? He's given us everything. Everything. It's up to us to apply it. It's up to us to apply it. Well, here's the second metaphor. That was salt. Here's the second metaphor. Matthew 5:14 and 15. Matthew 5:14 and 15. This is back to the CSB if you're following along in a different version. God's word, Jesus speaking. You are the light of the world. So he said that you are salt of the earth. Now he says, "You are the light of the world." A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp, and that's like the little oil lamps that you've probably seen, little oil lamps that didn't really give much light. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. Pretty common sense, right? This is pretty easy to grasp. When the girls were little, we lived out of state, we lived in Virginia, and when we came home to Beckley on 64, as we got close to the first exit, they would always talk about how we must be close to the town because of all the lights we see, and to them, you know, wow, that looks like a, a big city, that's how little they were, little, little did they know, being little, <laughs> joke was on them. But, man, they, you know, they would always say every time we'd come home, oh, look, there's the lights of the town. We must be getting close. And, I mean, you know, that's how, I mean, we're up on a hill, and so if you're coming from south or, you know, you, you look and there's you can see, okay, there's Beckley. It's up on the hill. You see the lights. It's, it's unmistakable. It doesn't matter how little we might be. You see the lights from pretty far off. As Jesus was speaking, you know, I told you about... Magdala, he was close to that, a couple miles away. Well, he was also even closer to another city, another town. The city of Safed was just a little farther up from where Jesus most likely gave his sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and it was up even higher than what he would have been. It's still there. It's a different name now, but the city is still there. And where he gave the Sermon on the Mount in proximity to Safed it towered over the area. So even where Jesus was, the Sermon on the Mount, even above him, there was this other town that towered over the whole area. And it would have been impossible to ignore, especially at night. And so when he talked about being like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, he was likely pointing to Safed. And all of his listeners would have easily understood that connection. That's how we're meant to be as Christians, as citizens of his kingdom. Unmistakable in contrast to the darkness around us. Not because of how good we are, not because of how big and strong we are, but because of what we have and because of whose we are. Matthew five sixteen, as Jesus wraps up this section. He said, in the same way, so in the same way as a city on a hill, think of Safed, or closer to home, think of how even little old Beckley looks at night when you're coming from the interstate, and you see it far off. In the same way, as a city on a hill, or as an oil lamp that you put up on a lampstand to give more light, like that, in the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may look at you and how bright you are and say, oh, how pretty. No, of course not. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works or your light shining out and give glory, not to you, to your Father in heaven. You see, we have to keep in mind, Christian, we have to keep in mind that this isn't all about us or something we can do. That's not what being the light of the world is about. Being the light of the world, little L, little L, that's what we are, is about pointing to the light of the world, big L. That's what Jesus is. So us being a little light Of the world is about pointing to the ultimate, the supreme, the perfect light of the world. It's about Jesus. Only, here's another thing we have to make sure we get down and we keep in front of us, we keep coming back to, we keep applying. It's this only, 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 only the light of Jesus can dispel the darkness of the world. Only the light of Jesus can dispel the darkness of the world. You and I can't do that. We're just not powerful enough. We're not strong enough in our light projection. You know, we just, we're not going to do that. But if we point with our light, with our little, feeble, flickering light, if we will point people to the light, the light that never goes out, the light that never fades, then we can see the darkness of the world start to disperse. And because of that, Because only the light of Jesus can dispel the darkness of the world, here's what that means it's really practical. The world doesn't need to see how bright we can be, the light of Jesus is what they need to see. The world doesn't need to see how bright we can be. We don't need to work really hard at proving how bright we can be and how pretty and how strong and powerful our light is. That's not what we need to spend our time doing. That's a waste of time. They're not going to be impressed, no matter how bright your personal light might be. It's not going to change their life, church. They need to see the light of Jesus. That's what they need to see, because only the invasion of His light into a dark heart can change the life. Only the invasion of Jesus' light into the dark heart of a very corrupt, polluted life, only His light is going to change that life. And that, when that happens, think about your own story, your own testimony, when that happens, that results in glory being given to the Father that sent him to us. You see how that works? Let your light so shine before others that they will see your good works, your light, and give glory to your Father in heaven. How does that work? Because the light of Jesus that we point them to has the power to come in and change their life. And when their life is changed and they see the connection, they give glory to the Father that sent Jesus to save their life. That's how it all fits together. And here's a really good summary of all of this. 2 Corinthians 4, 5-7. through 2 Corinthians 4, 5-7. through seven. This is also from the ESV that I'm reading from. The Apostle Paul says this, For what we proclaim is not ourselves. We need to get that. That needs to be true of us. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. That goes all the way back to the very beginning, Genesis 1. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, don't miss this part, in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what we've been tasked with. That's what we've been given the high honor of being vessels of, instruments of. But be careful, because what happens is the human nature comes into that and says, oh, wow, you're light bearers. Look how how bright you get to be. Look how shiny you are. That's why verse 7 says this. But... We have this treasure, the the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's the treasure. We have this treasure in what? Jars of clay or clay jars. Do you know how feeble and frail clay jars were and are? That's the point. We have this treasure, this massive treasure in these little clay pots that are frail and feeble and get all these little cracks and holes. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Isn't that marvelous? He didn't give us these big, sturdy, impenetrable Pots, you know, or, or, or um, these big, you know, vases. That's not the imagery that, that Paul gives us here. He doesn't say that's, that's what contains this awesome, surpassing, all surpassing treasure and power of the knowledge of the glory of God. No, it's like we're these little feeble jars of clay. And the reason is so that people aren't drawn to the pot, they're not drawn to the, the jar, they're not drawn to the outside, they're not drawn to the package, they're drawn to what it contains. That's what should be true of us. That's what should mark our lives, define us, describe us. And what this all comes down to is this. The salt and light that we are to be, salt and light that we are as Christians, as citizens of Christ's kingdom, the way we are consistently people that are salt and light is by being consistently the people described and mapped out for us in the Beatitudes. See, that's how it all fits together. That's how this all ties together. The Beatitudes that we spent two weeks looking at, that Jesus started this sermon, this epic sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, the introduction that the Beatitudes were, as they built on one another, it all points to what was just said in this section. That's how we are people that are the salt of the earth. That's how we are people that are the light of the world, by consistently being people that have the character traits and the attitudes and the mindset described for us in the Beatitudes. It all fits together. You see that? May that all fit together in our lives. That's what it really comes down to. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how powerful it is. I thank you for how relevant it is. May we not just hear it and think, wow, how great that is, how neat that is, how marvelous that is. It is, all of that. But may we hear your word. May we hear your truth. May we first be changed by it. And then as we are being changed by it, may we be faithful to apply it And to use it, your word, your truth, your power, to be instruments of change and preservation in a dying, decaying world that desperately, desperately needs to see the light of the glory of God in the face, the person, the work of Jesus. May we be faithful light bearers that don't point to ourselves. But rather, may we be light bearers that point to that all-surpassing majesty and the matchless glory of the light of Jesus. Because only the light of Jesus can truly change a life. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.